0: mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices message and data rates may apply bank of america and a member fdsc ohio ready for some quick mental health facts let's go nearly two million ohioans live with a mental health condition in the u.s. more than 50 percent of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide so why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at BeatTheStigma.org. Welcome to Pax Britannica. Season 2, Episode 67. The Second English Civil War, Part One. Welcome back to Pax Britannica. I'm your host, Samuel Hume. Thank you to my House of Lords for their support, including the recent editions The Earl of Cornwall, Andre Andreokovich, and The Earl of Kent, Matt Jenkins. Like all of our patrons, they can now listen to this and every other episode ad-free. Go to patreon.com slash paxbritannica to find out more. Last time, we saw the Royalist Coalition make the opening moves of the Second English Civil War. In Scotland, the engagement, the treaty between King Charles I and his Scottish supporters, was ratified by the Parliament of Scotland. In Ireland, Lord Inchiquin defected from his allegiance to the English Parliament, purged his army of now disloyal officers, and began negotiations for a truce with the Catholic Confederacy. And in England, popular resistance to the New Model Army and to the Puritan Parliament combined with the defections of veteran officers, angered by the course of events. A counter-revolution was brewing. We'll stay in England for now, as Parliament and the New Model Army attempts to keep a lid on popular rebellion. In April 1648, the day after Easter, thousands of London's apprentices gathered and marched through the capital, chanting, Now for King Charles! A force of cavalry was sent to disperse them, and the next day, a larger army force entered London to restore order. When the day was over, several apprentices were dead. English diplomatic efforts with the Scots had not ended just because Parliament had de facto dissolved their alliance. Agents of Parliament met with the Earl of Argyll, who was known to be opposed to the engagement, and promised money and military support to him and the Kirk faction. But these diplomatic efforts were not limited to actions out in the open. English espionage was in full swing. Correspondence between the engagers and the king imprisoned in Carysbrook Castle on the Isle of Wight, were intercepted, and many of Charles's replies were blocked. Much of this textual evidence of the King's complicity in not just the organisation of a foreign invasion, but of instigating another bloody civil war, was kept in a folder marked, for future use, Operation Man of Blood. I exaggerate, but it's definitely being kept to one side, you know, just in case it was needed. On the 23rd of April a large crowd surrounded the house of the mayor of Norwich John Otting who had been summoned to London to explain his actions these actions happened to be allowing royalists to be elected as aldermen of the city permitting royalist celebrations on the anniversary of the king's coronation and failing to act on a puritan petition to complete the reformation of the city's churches a counter petition had spread through the city over the previous days, calling for him to stay and for Parliament to withdraw its complaints. The crowd had gathered because it was rumoured that the mayor was going to be kidnapped by Parliament or by the army, and they would not let that happen. Even when Otting himself came out of his house and begged the crowd to go home, saying that he wasn't worried about being kidnapped, they refused. They were bound by oath to protect their mayor. Events escalated. Soon, a group of armed men gathered, and when word reached them that the parliamentarian messenger who'd brought the summons was still in town, they rushed to seize him. And the sources state that had Utting not intervened, they'd probably have murdered him. Again, Utting urged them to disperse, and again this appeal didn't work. Instead, events escalated again. As the crowd grew, so did their confidence. A cry went up, to purge the London Common Council of Roundheads, to purge Parliament too, and to fight for the King. The Parliamentarian messenger, who was meant to take Utting back with him, decided that that really wasn't going to work anymore, and so he went to leave. The sources again state that had Calmerheads not escorted the man out of the city, the crowd would have murdered him. But once that was done, things escalated again. When word reached Norwich that Colonel Fleetwood was on the way to restore order, the citizens of Norwich panicked. They broke into the city armoury and gathered together weapons and ammunition. Fleetwood did indeed arrive, and engaged the crowd, forcing many to fall back into the building where they'd gathered their gunpowder. And then, events escalated again, this time very loudly and in a fiery explosion. Because somehow, probably by accident, 98 barrels of gunpowder detonated. At least a 100 people were killed in the direct explosion, soldiers and civilians alike, and the sources note that the debris from the explosion injured and killed people who were minding their own business miles away. The next day, Utting went to London and was placed under house arrest until July, when he was fined and released. Such was the paranoia of the times and resentment of Parliament that even though this had always been the most likely outcome, why Utting was quite content to go along with the messenger, it had still led to more than a hundred deaths. Things were looking dire. The Grandees, as well as many other officers, gathered at Windsor Castle. Here, on the 27th through to the 1st of May, they sought guidance from who else but God. Over these days, they fasted and prayed and spoke to each other about what illuminations they had received. Cromwell focused their thoughts by urging them all to, quote, a thorough consideration of our actions as an army, as well as our ways particularly as private Christians, to see if any iniquity could be found in them, that if possible we might remove the cause of such sad rebukes as there were upon us, end quote. Lieutenant General Gough was a particularly eloquent voice, quoting from the Bible, Proverbs 123 if you're interested, and insisting that all their troubles were God's punishment for not being pious enough. Soon enough, the entire room had broken down crying about how they were all such terrible sinners who had not listened to God or read the scriptures enough. But soon enough, they dried their eyes, and out of the shared emotion came shared conviction they resolved to march against their enemies, God's enemies, and to fight them and destroy them in his name. You know, like Jesus would. This was another occasion where Charles was termed the Man of Blood. He had brought this conflict down on England, and he would be called to account for the blood he had already shed, and all the bloodshed to come. The king, and the resurgent royalists were going against the judgment of God, which had been made very clear with Parliament's victory in the First Civil War. With their faith and their morale restored to new heights, the grandees dispersed across England to do God's work and to deal with the unrest. Now we're in May 1648. On May Day, the citizens of Bury St Edmunds celebrated with the traditional dancing around the maypole. So, of course, the army arrived to put a stop to this sinful behaviour. A troop of Fairfax's cavalry arrived and demanded that the crowd disperse. The crowd did not disperse. Instead, they began shouting, For God and King Charles! Then they charged at the mounted soldiers and forced them to retreat out of the town, whereupon they closed and locked the gates, built barricades in the streets, and cracked open the city's magazine to arm themselves. This is in Suffolk, a county which traditionally had strong support for Parliament and for Puritanism, which meant two things. Firstly, this uprising took Fairfax and the army by surprise. Secondly, it meant that there were still a lot of people who were willing to support Parliament. The army detachment under Colonel Wally was soon reinforced by local militia troops. And then we see another instance of disagreement between Parliament and the army. Wally was ordered by Fairfax to retake the town however he saw fit, and the Colonel was prepared to take Bury by force. But Parliament had dispatched the MP, Sir Thomas Barnardston, to recover the town, and he was in favour of negotiation. In this case, words won out. The rebels accepted a deal to surrender, laying down their arms in the marketplace on the condition that they be pardoned. Then they opened the gates, and then Cromwell ordered his cousin to secure the town and the cousin did so with a heavy hand. So heavy was his hand, in fact, that it left two people dead. Francis Young notes that this was not a serious threat for Parliament, but it was a blow to morale, and it highlights the importance of ordinary festivals to ordinary people. Parliament's overzealous interference and attempts to reform society along godly lines was stirring up dissent. The army was starting to feel the strain of the great disbandment. The remaining forces under arms, more than 20,000, were a match one-on-one with almost any other contender, but they were overstretched by the unrest sweeping England and Wales, and they were forced to be spread even more thinly with each uprising. Fairfax was ordered north by the Derby House Committee to deal with Sir Marmaduke Langdale and Sir Philip Musgrave, who had captured Berwick and Carlisle as we left off last episode. A Scottish invasion was sure to come soon, and Fairfax had better prepare for it. But Parliament quickly rescinded the order, until Hamilton actually crossed the border. His theoretical invasion was a much lower priority than the real dangers facing Parliament in England. But what about that Scottish invasion, which Langdale and Musgrave had so effectively opened the gates for? Well, on the 2nd of May, the Parliament of Scotland called for the raising of a new army, and the command structure was decided. The Earl of Leven, Alexander Leslie, was, as Stuart Reeds puts it, too old and too sensible to accept command. The acting commander, David Leslie, was too politically unreliable for Hamilton and the Engagers. He was a firm Argyle supporter. This meant that Hamilton himself took command, despite having very little experience or military skill. His most famous military action was probably when he attempted a naval invasion of Edinburgh, and his own mother turned up with a pistol and threatened to shoot him. Hamilton was well aware of his lack of experience, and between delaying any decisions or second guessing those he made, he will not be a good commander. No problem, you might think. Scotland could draw on a wide range of experienced officers who could be his second. Unfortunately, the man chosen was a very bad choice the Earl of Callender, who was an experienced commander who had fought in the Low Countries. He was politically reliable, too, firmly royalist. The problem was that Callender knew he was a better commander than Hamilton, and he firmly believed he should be the actual commander. As we'll see, Callender will not be a loyal right-hand man for Hamilton, and while he was probably a better commander than Hamilton, that didn't mean he was much better. Further displaying the internal weaknesses of the Engager regime, though David Leslie was offered a position as General of Horse, he turned it down. Reed quips that, quote, while the army was well provided with generals, it lacked just about everything else. Quote. This apparently included recruits. The Scottish Parliament called for the mustering of 27,750 infantry and 2,760 cavalry. This was apparently based on a very optimistic prediction that the engagers could combine the existing Army of the Covenant, reinforcements from Ulster, and new recruits. As we'll see, Hamilton will invade England with less than half that amount. The Kirk faction, including Argyle, resisted the troop levy. As we covered last episode, Kirk ministers preached against it from the pulpit, and many sincere, covenanted young men, as well as those who didn't fancy dying for the king, fled conscription or deserted from the existing army. Argyle was even rumoured to be in secret communication with the English, which, to be fair, he was. Resistance was especially strong in Ayrshire and Glasgow, but even in Edinburgh, Hamilton found himself stoned and insulted by the city's women. Luckily for him, there were no stools around. In response, the Engager-dominated Parliament warned the Kirk not to fall into the Episcopal disease of meddling in civil affairs. But of course, for the Kirk party, this was not a civil affair. The engagement threatened the future of the covenanted Kirk, and it would be resisted. Anti-engager sentiment was helped by the general war-wariness of Scotland. Scottish soldiers had been fighting in all three kingdoms more or less non-stop for nearly a decade. How many more young men would have to be sent away to fight and die, leaving their homes and families behind, leaving work undone and an economy struggling? how much more tax could possibly be levied to support them? And for what? A king that many did not trust, who refused to take the covenant, and against the zealous words of their local minister who they trusted with their very souls. Recruitment was, therefore, slightly difficult. This manpower issue was made worse by the conscious decision of the Engagers to refuse the services of many former Scottish Royalist rebels who had fought against the Covenanter regime. This was meant to appease anti-engagement feeling, but it deprived the army of valuable veterans, and it didn't sway the kirk. All this meant that recruitment was slow, and it would be two months before Hamilton felt ready to act. This was all the time that Fairfax, Cromwell and the New Model Army needed to crush the Engagers' English and Welsh allies and prepare for their arrival. But of course, they didn't know that at the time, and things were looking a bit dicey for Parliament. Fairfax, pressed for manpower, ordered the bulk of his remaining men to guard key areas. The North, under the command of John Lambert, who, if he isn't already a Major General, will be soon, and Sir Arthur Hazelrigg, were to guard against the imminent invasion by the Scots and to harass the English royalists under Musgrave and Langdale. Garrisons at the key fortresses of Gloucester and Oxford, among others, were reinforced. In the West and the South West, Royalist and anti-parliament, anti-army feeling was high, and of course South Wales was already in open revolt. Worcester, Devon and Cornwall were all hotspots of resentment, which often spilled over into open resistance. Plymouth mutinied against its parliamentarian governor, and the citizens of Exeter were so hostile to Parliament that the garrison actually withdrew from the city in order to keep the peace and avoid an active insurgency. This left Fairfax with only 7,000 men to hold London and the South East. He'd need every single man, as Parliament's position in the South East became more and more unstable. Chelmsford in Essex, which had sent its petition earlier in the year, only to have it ignored, took on Westminster again. Now, the Chelmsford Grand Jury adopted the Engagement and Declaration, refusing to collect taxes, recruit soldiers, or allow the armies of Parliament to enter the Shire. And just in case they hadn't made their allegiance known, the Engagement and Declaration also pledged to defend the King and the, quote, known laws of this Kingdom. Worse, In late May, eight warships of the Royal Navy defected to the King. Remember, the Royal Navy had been controlled by Parliament since the start of the First Civil War, much to the King's annoyance. Now, resentful at the lack of pay, and at the independent control of the army and Parliament, and angry at the state of affairs, they swapped sides. Sir Thomas Rainsborough, only recently appointed, quickly found himself in a small boat as his fleet sailed away. The defection of this small fleet was a massive opportunity for the Royalists. If only they could decide what to do with it. In Paris, Henrietta Maria and her allies wanted to use it to escort Prince Charles to Scotland, where he would join up with Hamilton in the Engagers and march south. Anti-Engagers, or at least anti-Presbyterian Royalists, urged the Prince to use it to sail to Ireland or to Wales to link up with Royalist forces there. Others supported a bold strategy of sailing up the Thames, right to London, which would surely welcome the heir apparent with open arms, ending the war before it really got going. Events would soon overtake the debate, and until then, the Royalist Royal Navy ships blockaded the Thames and made some small contributions to the land war. Fairfax read the reports of the events in Wales with alarm. Remember, Colonel Poyer and Major General Larne, which is apparently how it's pronounced, had defeated part of Colonel Horton's force, and had then gone on to recruit many Royalist Welsh into their forces. Horton was now greatly outnumbered, and Fairfax was worried that he wouldn't be able to suppress this uprising on his own. So Fairfax sent Cromwell to lend a hand, and the hands of a few thousand cavalry. But Poyer and Larne weren't fools. And through their intelligence, they knew that Cromwell was on the way with reinforcements. They decided to act quickly, to pin down and destroy Horton's force before Cromwell arrived. On the 8th of May, the two forces clashed on the hills outside the village of St. Fagans in South Wales. The Royalists had around 7,000 men, mostly infantry, but Horton only had between 1,000 and I've read varying numbers. Whatever the size of this force, two things are consistent. At best, he was outnumbered by more than two to one, and most of his army was mounted. And here we see where the discipline and morale of the new model army really plays a role. Many of Poyer and Lahn's men were fresh recruits, and the rest were former parliamentarian soldiers who just wanted to be paid and go home. In contrast, Horton's experienced veterans were motivated and fueled by contempt for these rebels, these traitors, who had turned against the cause and rejected God's will. Even with the advantage of numbers, the Royalists simply could not break the Parliamentarian cavalry, and when the mounted soldiers charged, it was all over. The Royalists broke and lost around 3,000 men either killed, wounded, or captured. Horton followed up the victory by marching on Tenby Castle, which had fallen to the Royalists, confident that Cromwell was close behind him with reinforcements. St Fagans was a stunning victory for Parliament, proof that their cause had divine blessing, and it was equally devastating for the Royalists. Cromwell joined up with Horton on the 11th of May, and the two set off on a tour of Wales. Just Cromwell, Horton, and a few thousand of their closest and most heavily armed friends. They stopped at Chepstow Castle, which they stormed on the 25th of May, and then reached Pembroke. Now, Pembroke was a difficult nut to crack. It sits on a limestone hill, almost entirely surrounded by the Pembroke River, which gave it natural defences. It was regarded as one of the strongest fortresses in Britain. The garrison was mostly made up of poised, defecting veterans. Despite his optimistic prediction that they would soon take the castle, Cromwell and Horton had to besiege the fortress for two months. Through the efforts of Poyer and Larne's men, a sizeable force of the new model army and Oliver Cromwell himself would be kept out of wider events. Back in England, an armed group of 3,000 men marched on London from Surrey. But this wasn't an army, this was a petition. And they took this petition all the way to Parliament, as in, right into Westminster Hall. They killed a guard on the way in, and it took the army detachments which garrisoned the capital to force them out. Despite the numbers involved, only five or six petitioners were killed, but many more were wounded. More serious was the threat from Kent. Royalists in the county had planned to coordinate their uprising as the Scots invaded, but events spun out of control. When the Christmas rioters stood trial on the 10th of May, outrage spurred the rank and file to action. Within a few days, Royalist rebels had secured multiple towns and castles, such as Rochester and Sandwich, including their armouries, all helped by Royalist defectors in the Royal Navy, whose powerful cannons bombarded parliamentarian coastal positions while blockading any support. In London, the Derby House Committee, which was meant to be focused on the Irish War, had become the chief executive body of England after the dissolution of the Committee of both kingdoms. Led by Lord Say and Seal, it coordinated with Fairfax to put down this dangerous threat. Kent is, of course, very close to London, and also very close to the European continent. If it was not brought back into Parliamentarian control, foreign intervention from one of the king's relatives might be possible that was if the English rebels didn't take London themselves by the twenty ninth of May. The royalists had mustered around ten thousand people near Rochester. They elected the Earl of Norwich as their leader, who was also the father of George Goring, the former royalist general. Norwich decided that his ragtag army would advance on Blackheath very near to London. In fact, like so many other places, it was so close that it is now part of Greater London. This was getting serious. Thanks to the Great Disbandment, Fairfax could only call on 4,000 men to counter this existential threat right on London's doorstep. This included the London garrison, and Fairfax had to leave the capital in the trustworthy hands of General Skippen, who commanded the militia and could be trusted to maintain order and the city's allegiance to Parliament. That is, unless Fairfax was defeated in the field, and a powerful Royalist army came knocking. The capital was left vulnerable, though it was in the safest possible pair of hands in General Skippen. With as many men as he could afford to take from the capital, on the thirtieth of may Fairfax marched straight to Blackheath. When he reached Blackheath, almost immediately A thousand of the rebels took one look at the hardened army that had come to fight them and suddenly remembered that, oh yeah, they aren't rebels, we're just petitioners, that's all. So they surrendered to the army, and then their former comrades also remembered that they had somewhere very important to be, something very important to do back home. The rest of the rebel force withdrew back towards Rochester, having lost a substantial portion of their force without a fight. Fairfax then moved to Gravesend, and from there he aimed to follow the rebels back to Rochester. But when his scouts reported that the road was blocked, rather than attempt to break through against superior numbers, Fairfax took a different route and targeted Maidstone, garrisoned by around 2,000 men. Keeping his army behind thick forests and taking a circuitous route, and without competent scouts from the rebels, Fairfax was able to get his force only four miles away from Maidstone by the time the alarm was raised. His vanguard of dragoons got to the gates first, and after hearing the shout, for God, King Charles and Kent, were so angered that they charged without orders, even in the pouring rain. I wonder why they hated Kent so much. Fairfax had planned to delay an assault until the following day, because he had to wait for his artillery to catch up. But the skirmish between the vanguard and the defenders escalated, and Fairfax was forced to commit to an all-out engagement, even as the sun set. The rebels put up surprising resistance, and it took more than two hours to cover a mile of hedgerows and ditches, all tenaciously contested by stubborn infantry and well-positioned artillery. And that was just outside Maidstone. Once inside the walls, Fairfax found the rebels had built barricades, forcing the new model army to fight street by street, house by house. Strategically placed artillery fired down the streets, scything through Fairfax's men. One account explains the tenacity of these rebels compared to the thousands that had just given up a few days before. These were apparently veteran royalists from the First Civil War, or sailors or apprentices from far afield with nowhere close to flee to. Desperate men, in other words. Fairfax led from the front, despite agony from gout, and despite the efforts of the Royalists, Maidstone was fully conquered by one in the morning. The fall of Maidstone rippled through Royalist ranks. Many of the Royalists still under arms deserted once news reached them. Norwich was undeterred, though, and still led around 3,000 men at Rochester. His plan was to link up with Royalists within London and to capture the capital. But Skippen was no fool. London Bridge was fortified, the gates were shut, and any boats large enough to carry any significant number of soldiers were seized and prevented from sailing across the Thames. That first plan in Tatters, Norwich led his men into Essex, crossing the Thames near Greenwich, mostly by small boat, on horseback and, for the unlucky, by swimming. After desertions, Norwich entered Essex with only around 1,500 men. Fairfax, in the opinion of Lipscomb, bungled here. Instead of pursuing Norwich in force, crushing him, either against the Thames or the anvil of Skippen's militia, he prioritised the pacification of the rest of Kent. He sent Wally to shadow Norwich while he mopped up. Dover Castle had been besieged by the rebels, but had not yet fallen, and it was quickly relieved by Fairfax's men. Other rebels either surrendered, deserted the cause, or fled, to join up with their comrades in Essex, which now became the centre of rebellious activity in the southeast. We'll follow Norwich and Fairfax into Essex next time. I'm trying something of an experiment, so the next episode will be out in just three days' time, just like this episode was published three days after the previous one. Thank you to my House of Lords, including Mike Sanders, the King's favourite, David Braswell, Duke of Bracewell, Nick Robinson, Marquess of Ludlow, and Linda Knowlton, Countess of Coventry. Remember that you can join the mailing list to be notified about new episodes and news about the show by going to the link in the description. Thank you to Sounds Like an Earful for the interval music in today's episode, to my entire House of Lords, and to you for listening.